Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Building a Bridge. My name is Jesse Brizendine. Jared Countess, and our mission is to empower people to use their voice to build a bridge beyond race relations, creating unity and understanding, effectively raising the collective consciousness of humanity. Last week, we expanded on our conversation perception versus reality, and then it started to evolve it into a police discussion. Both Jared and I shared some ideas of if we could change things, what would we do? What would that look like? And then I'm going to pass it back over to Jared. Yeah. So um, we really wanted to get someone on uh, that was that could represent for us the uh, police force um, or police and see them as human beings. So I happen to know um, some wonderful human beings who are cops or former cops. And so one of them, I finally convinced and got his schedule locked in to um, come on the show. Um, his name is Tony Redarte. Uh, Tony, introduce yourself, sir. <laughs> awesome, thank you. Well, I'm super excited to be here with you guys. Uh, Jesse and Jared both, I appreciate the opportunity to come and just have an open dialogue. Um, so a little bit about myself. My name is Tony Rodarty. Um, I'm retired from the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office in Phoenix, Arizona. This September will be two years. So I did 20 years of law enforcement in Arizona. I spent my last 11 years working within our homicide unit of the Sheriff's Office. And so because we are a major metropolitan law enforcement entity, our homicide unit, that's all we did. We did homicides and deputy involved shootings. Um, and so I'm super excited to be here and to just talk a little bit about not only what that looks like specifically, but what does it look like uh, for me personally? Tony, I, I appreciate you being here. And I think that one of the things maybe we could just, we could start off with is I, I, I'm, I'm not in law enforcement. I've never been. I have some dear friends who are. And I think a lot of people who have opinions, and all of us have opinions, right, who are weighing in, we don't necessarily understand what a typical day in life is like for a law enforcement officer. Maybe you could start us with that. He's just, what is, it, what is it like, especially for you working in a homicide or having worked in a homicide division, what is a typical day like for you? What are you, what are you experiencing? What are you seeing? What is, the, what is the environment like? So do this, picture whatever typical is in your mind and whatever that looks like, package it up, roll it into a ball, and throw it over your shoulder because it doesn't exist. Um, there is no normal in that environment. Um, I will tell you logistically kind of how it works. Um, so we're, we're low, I say we, like I'm still there. I, it's almost two years, but it's such a massive part of my life. Um, that unit is located in central Phoenix. Um, and we have offices there, we have everything, um, all of our recording equipments there, all of our interviews, all of our, everything we do is there. So it's a, it's a Monday through Thursday type job, quote unquote, if you will. Um, I was working 10 hour shifts, Monday through Thursday. Uh, however, um, when that phone rings and you're going to work, you're no longer at that office. Um, and Maricopa County is a large county, 9,200 square miles. There would be homicide scenes that would take me an hour and a half to get to my house. Uh, from the East Valley uh, to the far extreme parts of the West Valley. Um, and then it's go time. Uh, it's busy, busy, busy. Everybody has a huge role to do. We had seven man squads, um, correction, seven uh, detective squads, um, seven person squads. And um, you had one supervisor, you had six detectives and everybody had an assignment and it was boom, 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 boom. It was not 
uncommon at all on an active homicide to work uh, 90 hours in a week, uh, 100 plus hours in a week. Um, and then you would have some weeks where you simply didn't do anything. You weren't getting called out. And it was a, a day job, it was a banker job, it was you know, 10 hours Monday through Thursday and we'd go catch up on paperwork, we would attend court, we would do all that stuff. But you never could predict when these call outs would occur. Um, and that was the difficulty in that environment. You were constantly ready to go. So at that time, well, when I left, we had three squads, a cold case squad and two active squads. And you were either on call or you were a phone call away from going up on call. So you really never had any downtime at all. And when you were on call, um, never really slept well. Um, always knowing in the back of my head I could leave for a long time. Um, and then I'll be honest with you, always in the back of your head too, I knew every single day of my career going to work that there could be a chance where I would not come home. And I had to make that conscious decision mentally, spiritually, and emotionally for myself and for my family and what that looked like. Um, and am I willing to make that ultimate sacrifice? Um, and for me, the answer was yes. I made the conscious decision to do that. It wasn't a death wish, nor did I want to die. Um, but I wasn't scared, um, and I didn't allow those emotions to control what I was doing. I'm thankful for every single, well, I won't say every single, because we have some bad apples out there. But I am thankful for every police officer that makes that decision to protect you and me with their life, no matter what happens and no matter what call for service comes over that radio. So those were things like that that we would talk about. I had very open uh, dialogues with my wife. My wife is amazing. When I first went to homicide, I asked her to give me 12 months, one year. And let's reevaluate. Let's see where I'm at. My kids were young at the time. I did that 12 months. We were doing okay. Uh, we expanded it. I did another year. As my kids got a little older, we would have group discussions as a family. Hold me accountable. What does this look like? Am I okay? Are you guys seeing something I'm not seeing? I was always super good at compartmentalizing and leaving work at work. Um, we, every single day we were dealing with the absolute worst time in the history of one particular family, and it sucked. So I got really good at, okay, that's work, now I'm home. Now I get to be a dad, now I get to be a husband. So I would incorporate my family into the decision-making process. Towards the end of it, um, it, it got to be a, a really well-oiled machine, um, and I ended up retiring out of that unit. All right, so I gotta chime in, because I know Tony's family, right? And well-oiled machine is a good way to describe it. Uh, <laughs> so I talk about his, his kids. So I've, I've worked with Tony, I've worked with both of his kids. Um, and of course I had a, a business relationship at one point with Melly. I still do, right? Mel did. Um, so Tony's kids are like the most, I met them when they were like, what? I think they were like 15 or 14. When they're 17 now, I've got, I've got boy girl twins getting ready to start their senior year and they're seven, they'll be 18, they'll be adults. Uh, <laughs> crazy as that. Well, the, wow. uh, so, okay, so here's the deal. So they're children to Tony. They've always had an adult mentality to me. <laughs> I think I've met them when they were 15. They were like yeah. super, they're so like regimented, like not, I mean, they're kids and that, like, I'll ask them things about their life and they'll, 
be honest. Like, I don't know. I have no, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what my plans are. Right. Like, I, you know, um, but they are very well put together. You know, like some teenagers you meet and they're like kind of all over the place and, you know, and, um, but they are very, they're very lined up and to be open and, 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 you know, and I think that's the hardest part about being a kid, right. Is, is one, you have all these possibilities and you don't know what you want to do with your life. And, you know, and, 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 but to then, but to still have to direct yourself towards something, right. To still have to be driven. So I, I, I applaud you guys because your, your kids are, are, you can see the drive, even though they don't know where the car is going quite yet. <laughs> they're so honest about it. You can see the drive and they're like, well, I'm going to set myself up to be able to take any turn I want. And, um, and when you talk to them, you get that sense. And it makes sense now. I've never heard that story um, about how you guys would, how you ask them to hold you accountable, right? Because um, that was going to be my, my question um, is how, one, not, now how do you like interact with your family when you see those things um, and how you deal with it? But when you said you go from this 90, 100 hour a week, right? And you're on a case to uh, kind of like a desk job. Like, how do you ramp yourself up? Do you ever ramp down? Like, how do you, you know what I mean? And, and like, and, yeah. and, and what, is, what is that process like mentally? You know what I mean? Where you have to, I'm like, I'm on call, I'm in this thing, or I'm ramped down. Like, do you ever come, can you ever really like come down from that and, and, and have like a moment for 11 years? Did you ever have a <laughs> like moment? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, and, and thank you for the compliments of my children. Um, my wife and my children are my absolute life, so I appreciate hearing that. Um, do I ever completely come down? Yeah, a few times when I was on vacation and I was gone and my county phone was not with me. It was turned off. I knew there was no opportunity of going to work. That was about it. Uh, for the vast majority of those 11 years, it wasn't spent on vacation. It was spent uh, in a working environment. So it's really tough. You never really can sleep really good um, knowing that you're a phone call away from going to work for a really long period of time. It's really hard to uh, engage in social gatherings and have an open calendar. It's just, it's just difficult. If I had a dollar for every birthday party I missed, every anniversary, every holiday, every special event, um, I'd be much richer than I ever was being a cop. Um, it, it's just, you're just in that environment and it just becomes your new norm. Um, I, had, I had told the kids and I had told Melody, um, you know, and, and I hope, let me ask you this, because maybe this will ring true. My goal was when it was all said and done and people knew me, that I would be known as a really great dad and a really good dude and an okay cop. And I never wanted to have that flip-flop. And that, you never heard me say I love my job. Um, I don't, I, I love my family. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed being a police officer and I thought I was a really good homicide cop. And I feel like that's what I was called to do, but I didn't love it. I had to have mentally, I had to have that separation. I love my family, love my kids, love my family environment. I think when guys get and women get messed up is when we have it flipped. And I love being a cop and I like my family. That's a really dangerous place to be in. So I was really conscious about that. And I don't just say that. I genuinely meant that. I mean, I, I want to be known 
as just a good dude, a really good dad, a guy that cares about people and was a pretty good cop for those that may know I was a cop. Tony, I'm wondering if, if we could speak to a little bit of uh, arriving on a, especially maybe the first few times, or I don't know if even the first few times is appropriate, but what it's like for emotionally and psychologically to arrive on a homicide scene and see and observe and experience some of the stuff you have. I've experienced some pretty violent things in my life and from holding one of my best friends, literally trying to keep his brains from coming out of his head from him, self-inflicted gunshot wound to seeing some other things where I was in Haiti right after the hurricane in 2010 and there was no medicine. So these doctors were literally having to amputate this guy's leg to save his life with no medication, just watching this guy scream and everything. I mean, just some stuff. And so I, I, I lead with that because I've seen and experienced some sort of really violent trauma and I think about how much that affected me and whatnot. So I'm just wondering, like, I don't think a lot of people really understand what that is like emotionally, psychologically, when you go up and you, you, you engage in violence or you're around like the, the, the byproduct of violence in an intimate way, like police officers are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's a really good question. Um, I was in that world for so long that I kind of became numb to it. Um, I will tell you this, however violent you think the world is, it's much more violent than you think. Hmm. I, just, I can tell you that. The average person does not know what a violent world that we live in. Um, there are some people that cannot function in a free society, and they'll never know how to. There are some people that cannot be rehabilitated. Um, those are all conversations for later on. But there's just, there's some really violent acts that take place. Um, there is, you and I, Jesse, could have a conversation. You could tell me about something you saw. There's no reaction where I'd be like, really? Yeah. Holy cow, that's horrible. There's nothing you could tell me that would make me take a step back. Um, and I'm happy to discuss this. I think it's important. Um, I think what's really important, too, is when you and I have this discussion, especially for the purposes of the audience, that we don't share specifics. Because what I don't want to do is put some of the images I have in my head into your head or into a listener's head on some of that stuff that we've seen. So I can tell you it's incredibly violent. I have seen uh, death in any fashion that you can imagine. I have seen lives taken over the most minimal thing uh, out there. Um, and it's, it, it's brutal, but you have to get to a point where, and, and I don't wanna say numb, I think numb is a little unsensitive, but you gotta be able to function in that environment. Um, and you've got to be able to know how to operate appropriately in that environment. Um, and so for me, it was almost a feeling of being numb. But there's a difference between being numb and processing it and doing your job and being calloused. And I had told my wife all the time, if I ever become calloused, it's time to move on. Hmm. If I ever investigate a child homicide and it doesn't affect me emotionally, it's time to move on. If I ever become so numb to a child being killed gruesomely in those types of manners, then I got to move on. And there's always going to be, luckily for us, there's always going to be other people waiting in the footsteps to, to take my shoes. It's like when I retired, boom, somebody else was there and they're moving on. They're not going backwards. They're still moving forward. Um, things like that are what we need to think about too when we start talking about, and I, and I don't want to go down this completely yet, but when you start talking about defunding the police and 
eliminating police forces, there are some aspects of society that we just need. I, I believe in my heart of hearts, we just need police for some people. Uh, now there are some parts of society where we don't, um, but a homicide unit, a specialized unit, people that investigate sex crimes, child trafficking, um, even our DV assaults, things like that. We need law enforcement for that because that happens a lot more than people think. Can also tell you this, in all my years of homicide, I probably got called out to a homicide at noon on a Tuesday more than I ever did at 3 a.m. on a Friday. And I did plenty of weekend homicides. Really? But so many homicides, they just happen all the time. The general public doesn't know because most of them aren't on the news. Hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to, so I heard your statement. I think you did a good job, Tony. I think that you did a, a great job of great dad, good cop. I don't know. I, I actually assumed that you were probably a better cop than, than what you would think of simply because I see you with your family. Right. Um, and I, and I think that that's something that I think a lot of jobs and a lot of professions work becomes your life, right? But I think for a, a police officer, I think it's probably even more important that you stay grounded in society, in your family, in the community, or whatever community you live in, right? Um, than almost any other job because, because how else can you hold on to your, your real humanity, right? Because that uniform is something, is almost something different, right? It's, 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 um, because you're going into a world where you need armor. It's almost like armor. And then you can adopt a persona to, to, to further like mount on that because you do see a lot, so much, so much, so much violence. Um, but like, it's just listening to you talk about it. It makes so much sense. And I wonder how many police officers do consciously work on trying to, to keep that peace. Right, trying to you know asking, do am I am I so am? I mean, I don't want this to affect my family. I don't want to affect it. I don't want it to affect my relationships. But am I so numb that I I'm I'm callous now that I that I that I'm losing that 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 part of myself that you know cares? Because when you see a lot of violence, it's hard to care about the world. I, I'm, I grew up in a place where I saw a lot of violence too growing up. And I, and I know what you mean, like, in terms of like, I mean, people can do, the thing that I would ask if you were to, to think, I think everybody's had a horrible thought in your mind, in their mind at one point or time, right? Magnify it, <laughs> right? And, and, then, and then actually think, consider the fact that you do it, right? Because there are people that, have thoughts that are worse than yours and then they go out and they do it you know and they and they do it some premeditated some in the moment and um just imagine you know being a cop and you see that and you see this horror you see this that your, your job is to clean up the messes and if you're not like what tony said if you're not invested in what is the beautiful side right if you don't make an actual effort to be to, to, to try to be invested in the beautiful side, your family, your community, the parts of your life, that these are the things that you're trying to protect, then, 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 then I think it's, it's super easy to, you know, 
just fall into the trap of being like, man, we live in a shitty world, right? It, it, and because it's, it's a lot of dark, it's darkness out there and you see some horrible things, right? And people without being a cop think the world is, is, is messed up, right? They think the world, I curse on here, Tony, so it, it is what it is, right? You think the world is fucked up, right? You curse in real life. I want the real Jared. So that's, that's just how you roll. <laughs> oh, man. You're trying, I, I, I want to be, now that we have you on, I want to be trying, I'm trying to be more professional. But anyway, so <laughs> it's fucked up. <laughs> It's fucked no, up. I, right? so, talk to Jared. I want the real Jared. The world, the world is fucked up. And people live everyday lives. Like people don't have normal jobs and think the world is a shitty place. And they have no real concept of how really evil people can be. Right? Like they have no true, they, they think that the person that cut them off or they lied to them or stepped on them to get ahead at their job is the worst fucking person in the world, right? And they think that's the worst fucking act and the world's so fucked up and people cheat and get ahead and lies. Well, people, people do way worse things to each other than that. And we ask cops to deal with that because you're not asking a cop or a police officer to deal with the guy who screwed you over at work, right? Sometimes you ask them to deal with the person that cuts you off in, in traffic. But what we're really asking them to deal with is you guys, you, you, you know, I'll say, I, I, they say once Marine, always Marine. So I get it. Once a cop, always fucking cop, right? So, <laughs> is, you know, you, you, you guys are forced to, you know, deal with the, the ugly shit that most people, excuse my language, don't even imagine, right? That most people don't even really, they, and, and I appreciate you saying don't paint those pictures in, in the people's heads. Because the things, because most people, you don't want that there. No. You don't, you don't, you don't want that in your head. So you don't even take the time to imagine the horrible things that people do. And in the news, as much bad stuff as the news puts out there, right? The news does not put out, you know, the vast, the majority of it. Every time there's a shooting, every time there's a, a murder, every time there's a child molestation, every time there's a, you know, all these things, we don't see that stuff on a daily basis as negative as the news can be we don't but we ask a group of people to go out and deal with that and then we ask them to 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 also be a part of the greater society and the greater community right and i think i think you did an awesome i know you so i know you did an awesome job of of doing that and one of the things that i'm going to let you talk again one of the things that my marine friends always told me right um which is funny um Cause after I got out and I, and I never, I don't, I, I did, you know, the minimum. Right. And so, but they, they tell me like, you didn't, it didn't change you. Right. So a lot of people, it changed me, but not like it didn't like a lot of people come out of the Marines and they are hardwired. Right. The Marine Corps can, can hardwire you more than any other branch of military in a certain way and a certain mentality. Um, and you know, my buddy was telling me like, you didn't, it didn't, it didn't change you, right? As it, <laughs> like not the way that it changed them. And um, part of the reason it didn't change me um, was, well, one, I came from a place where I'd, I'd already been formed and molded by certain things in my life that couldn't, that you couldn't, that molding was pretty solid. Um, and then two, 
even going into the Marines, I knew who I wanted to be, right? And I knew I wanted the Marine to amplify certain aspects of me and then keep certain things. So I was conscious yeah. about trying to, 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 to maintain um, certain perspectives. Um, and so that's, that's, I think that's why, and I think you were very conscious when you went into, you know, becoming, you know, a homicide detective that you wanted to never lose stuff. And I, I don't, I, w- I would ask how much of a part, you know, even going into it, right, did, did Melody and are we having kids, having that, did it, was it, was, like, let's say you were a single guy, do you think you would have went into homicide with that same, like, I'm going to try to hold on to this part of myself, or? Yeah, I, I, I really do. I mean, uh, what you see is what you get with me, whether I got a, a spouse or I'm living a single life, I'm still the same guy for the most part. Uh, I have the same uh, morals, the same principles that I try and live by. Um, I think probably it would have been pretty similar. Um, I do want to say this, so as we're talking about this and you're talking about all the violence that law enforcement sees and how difficult it can be and people really don't get it. Let's also not forget the modern day demonization of law enforcement too. So not only are they dealing with how violent it is and their own personal emotions, now they're also dealing with a society um, that doesn't like them. Um, and I know there's a lot of people out there that support law enforcement, but those aren't the people that law enforcement hears from. All they hear is the negative. So they're, they're constantly going. And I will tell you this too, the patrol officers, the men and women working patrol, it's a much more difficult job, I believe. I knew 100% of my bad guys were bad guys. And we had all the resources because we know we were going after people that took a human life. There's no greater crime that you can commit uh, than killing someone. Well, there are, there are some equally bad crimes, so please don't mistake that as me saying some of these other crimes are okay. But we just knew 100% of our suspects had taken a human life, and we had to take the appropriate precautions. So that meant a SWAT team most of the time was serving our search warrants. Um, we did a lot of our own surveillance, but we we knew it was go time. Whereas our patrol officers, the men and women working in your communities and your cities, they don't know what they're going to. They could be going to a, um, a call for service at a residence for a, a, a truant child who just isn't going to school. He's got to talk to mom and dad. Within seconds, that hot tone could be going off and it could be an active shooter at a high school right down the street. Um, I have a friend, a good buddy of mine, who uh, was in the military also. And, and when I was um, winding down my career seven years ago, I, I, was, I think I was in PTSD denial. I'm like, PTSD, that's not law enforcement, that's, that's military. Those are the true heroes. Those guys need all the help, uh, not law enforcement. It was a naive stance that I took years ago and I've come full circle. Um, but I remember vividly uh, my buddy Dan uh, telling me that law enforcement is the epitome of PTSD because you are literally, you are driving down the street. He said, well, let me, back it up. He said, when I was deployed and he was overseas, I knew it was pedal to the metal. We were grinding, but I knew there was an insight. I knew it was a six month, nine month deployment. We were there for 12 months, whatever it was. I knew that I was coming home. As long as I could keep myself and my buddies safe, we're coming home. Law enforcement, you don't know that. You're on a 20 year ride. And so you can't mash that pedal. You can't let off the pedal. Um, and he gave me the example, you could be eating ice cream with a small child reunited with a parent that was lost and go to a 
got to be involved shooting or murder within seconds. And so you got to be able to fluctuate. And so I, I think about that often um, and that, that perception of that, but it's, it's really tough and, and, and you got to know where you're going and how you're getting there or you're going to have problems. And we're seeing problems. We're seeing a lot of problems. Uh, you know, on top of that, we're losing, and I'm not a big statistic guy, so I'm, please, I'm not going to stand here and drop statistics left and right on shootings and black versus white and all of that stuff. I will just tell you this, that this is an occupation where people die. We lose officers every year. There's never been a calendar year in any recent time that I'm even aware of where a police officer has not died somewhere in the country. We usually lose over 100. Um, and so that's going through your mind too. When you're responding to this active shooter, when you're responding to this a burglary with a, dar a door that's been kicked in and you hear noise, movement in the house, and you're waiting, a SWAT team's in route. Um, it's just a lot of stuff that races through your head. So all I'm trying to say is, I just want you to put yourself in the shoes of a police officer and they're not all perfect. I'll be the first to admit that. But I will also tell you, every good cop wants a bad cop held accountable. 100% of the time. But as we navigate through this conversation, just think about all this stuff going on, all the stresses you have amplified by the fact that you may not even go home. And then you couple the awesome power that you're given as a police officer. You're given the powers to take a life. You're given the powers to make an arrest, to limit people's freedom, to limit people's constitutional rights. Uh, th those are huge, huge responsibilities. And it's really easy to say, yeah, they can do this and they're always screwing it up. But there's also tons of training that comes with that, too, because not just any person can be given that type of power. So you have police academies, you have ongoing training, you have proficiency training. I loved what you guys were talking about last week, predator versus prey. It made a bunch of sense. Um, there are specific units. They go out and look for predators. That's what they do. And they're darn good at it. There are specific units that protect the prey. That's, that's pretty much all that they do. Um, I also want to say one more thing, and I'll turn it back because this is a lot, and I want you guys to be able to unpack. But you guys were also talking about cars being stopped, cars being parked, sitting around high crime areas. You're not going to see that out here. You're not going to see it much. I can't speak for Baltimore or these other cities, but we're trained not to. You're sitting duck. We're in an environment where people don't like us. I don't want to be stationary. I remember going through the police academy, this was in the 90s, and they're telling us, roll your windows down when you're in the neighborhoods. You need a window down. I don't care if it's cold, and Jared, you and I can still actually get cold in Arizona in the winter. <laughs> People don't believe that. It's much colder in Baltimore, but roll your window down. It's, it was 118 in Phoenix yesterday. You're still rolling your window down when you're in those neighborhoods because you need to hear what's going on, and you need to prevent injury from uh, glass breakage. So if you take a round to the window, your window's down and they miss you, it's going. Uh, if your window's up and you're taking rounds, you're getting glass in your eyes all over. It's just, it's, there's so many things like that. We could stop and we could talk about that all day, but I just want you to think as we progress through this conversation, just all these things that are going through the mind of a police officer that you probably never even thought they might even think about. Um, I assure you that they do. And I'm sorry, that was a lot. So I'll turn it back over and let you guys unpack it. Tony, I appreciate you sharing all that. And I, it brings up about 50 questions I want to ask you, but I won't overwhelm any of this. So I'll just start with one or two. With a 20-year career in law enforcement, I can imagine that you have seen 
or I shouldn't say I can imagine, have you observed a change in public perception with law enforcement? And if so, what is that change that you've observed and how does, if it does, that change affect officers today? Yeah, absolutely. So I, so I actually started my career in 1997 in Los Angeles. I was working for LAPD. I worked down south in Harbor Division. Spent a year out there. Um, when I went through that police academy, which was longer than the police academy in Arizona, um, I felt like the perception on law enforcement was almost pro-law enforcement in the mid-90s to an extent. Again, this is my perspective, and I understand you might come from a community where that's not perceived, but me growing up where I grew up and living in the current conditions that I lived in, I, I was living, um, Jared, so you know, I was living in Mesa at the time, and that was just kind of, I, I wasn't seeing the negative side of law enforcement. We really wasn't exposed much on the news or things like that. Um, as I got into law enforcement, that pendulum goes back and forth. When I left in 2018, law we were already demonized. Um, it was already tough being a cop. You had a bullseye on you 24-7, on duty, off duty. We had new policies in place. At one point, we were, um, we were demanded to carry our firearms, even off duty, based on threats that had come in and things that were going on. It was just it was a totally different place from when I had started. I will tell you now, in 2020, um, with the current environment and everything that's going on, uh, it, it's worse than anything I ever worked in. It, it's really tough right now for our law enforcement um, because of just everything that's going on. We, we talked, I think we talked off air a little bit, but one of the concerns I have is when you paint everybody with the same broad brush, whether it's every protester as being violent, every police officer as being racist, um, Every cop is being bad. Um, it's just dangerous. It's dangerous in our society. It's dangerous for our homes. It's dangerous for our communities. It's dangerous for our professions. It's just, it's, it's just a, 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 not a good place to be in. Can I piggyback one more just real quick off of that? No, yeah. go for it. I am, I'm trying to let this, I had other questions and I want this stream of thought to keep going. So. I, I can tell you too, guys, I, I'm down. If your audience wants, we can always do this again too. I know we're kind of limited today. We have till eight o'clock, but if you guys want, or if your viewers especially want, I'm happy to come back on too. And, and we can even do something live with the page and do some specific Q&A where people are asking us questions, we're answering them real time, whatever you guys deem necessary. But I appreciate what you're doing with this page. Um, and I'll also tell you this, I was hesitant to get involved with this page uh, because there's so many out there and I don't, I just don't want to talk about this on Facebook. I don't want to have, I won't have arguments. I don't talk religion. I don't talk, there's, I don't talk politics on Facebook. So I appreciate the environment you're creating. I'm happy to expand on this, uh, but go ahead, Jesse. Absolutely. Uh, no, thank you, Tony. And I appreciate that. And I think a lot of folks watching and listening will take us up on that because I know I, I'm already trying to pick and choose what I want to ask just with a limited time. And I think that would be really incredible too, because I know there's some folks that would love to get your perspective and be able to ask you directly. I'm wondering, so I, I'm a big believer that, you know, there's 8 billion of us on the planet. So in all ways, shape or form, some more neighbors in one way or another, and that we have a, we have an innate responsibility to one another to, to, do what we can to support our neighbors. 
in, in, in some way, shape or form. And so I'm wondering like now another perspective is what can society do? What can we as a society do that would be supportive of law enforcement? What can we do that would be helpful to law enforcement? What can we do that would be, that would, gosh, that would just be something where it could start to repair the damage of that relationship because I'm hundred percent with you. I think one of the biggest challenges we face right now is we've gotten so excellent at fixing labels and then demonizing labels. So we can strip away the humanity. I don't have to see an officer who has a family, who has children, who has hopes, dreams, who's excited to go on vacation a little bit, who can't wait to go watch their kids school play on the weekend. I just get to see basically this motherfucker who wears a blue uniform and who's out to do bad shit. Right. The same thing is I can see some black dude who's a thug gangbanger, same as I can see some white guy wearing a, a, a wife beater with grease on it. That must be an abusive child molester or something like that. Right. Or, or if this guy has conservative values, must be a Trump fan. If this guy has liberal values, you know, whatever it is, like we've just gotten so good at wielding these boxes and these labels as weapons. And I really think that most of us, when we step outside of the limitations labels put on us and we allow ourselves to see the humanity, we see, we can see a police officer who has a family. We can see a guy over here who's trying to do this or a guy over here who's trying to do this or a woman over here who's trying to do this, whatever that is. Right. You know, and that people are just really trying to do for the most of us doing the best we can with what we have to make our lives, our families' lives and our communities better. And so as society, like if, if society could take, you know, those of us who are open to that and taking on that responsibility, what can we do to better support and empower police officers to do their jobs more effectively, to repair damaged relationships, to, to help officers feel not so, I don't know if I, that's the word I want to use, but you know what, like not so demonized, not so, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely does. I think there's a couple things you could do. Um, one, if you truly support law enforcement and you truly think there's value in their need, thank them. If you see a police officer, I'm a retired police officer. I still thank police officers for their service. Mm -hmm. If I'm out and about and they're around, I'm going to thank them. I'm going to strike up a conversation. It's really easy to say, but they're guarded. They don't want to talk. They're on edge. Well, they are on edge. Of course they're on edge, especially now. Nobody wants to talk to them. Nobody wants to be associated with them. So break the barrier, make eye contact, say hello. Um, and I encourage you to have these conversations with your, your social circle, uh, your family. Uh, talk about this stuff. What do you think? You know, I think about my kids all the time. I think it's a lot harder, well, two things. One, it's a lot harder for our kids to be kids. It's just a more difficult world right now with everything going on than when we were growing up. It's more violent, There's we have, internet uh, so we see things a lot quicker but i think about what's it like for my kids too um personally i try and limit the amount of news i'm watching at home and just try and have some conversations what do you think what do you think about this whether it's the nfl or black lives matter or taking knees or long all these topics uh, george floyd let's talk about this um, but to go back specifically to your question what can you do what can make a difference same thanks. I'm telling you, mm -hmm. it goes a mile. Uh, when I was working, uh, there were maybe a couple times 
once or twice I had a note on my car when I was working patrol. Um, it was just somebody randomly, anonymously saying thank you. Uh, a couple times uh, people would, um, they, they would just go out of their way. And I'm telling you, that makes all the difference in the world. Even if the police officer doesn't seem like he appreciates it, because he's probably going to be caught off guard. Um, especially if you like want to just pick up a meal anonymously, just pay for it. I do that with the military. Melody and I were out celebrating our anniversary. There was a young sailor in uniform and we bought his meal for him discreetly. It's not about I did this, but just something like that. Just make it known that you support them. We hear, we hear all the negativity about law enforcement. We hear it. I see it all over Facebook. See it all over the news. I see it all over the place. So don't 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 use that platform. Just use your human emotion, your human platform, and say thank you, thank you for being a cop. Because I assure you, I assure you, the vast majority of them genuinely care. And as difficult as it is, they're still going to be at your house at three o'clock in the morning when somebody's trying to break into your house and cause harm to your family and possibly even create death. No matter what you believe in they're still gonna respond, even if you don't like them. So I would just say, hey, thanks, or at least make eye contact and wave or smile. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, like, um, I like that. So one thing I get whenever I tell people of prior service uh, for Marine, they always say thank you, right? As a matter of fact, part of like now, like in teaching in Marine Corps is, what do you say when people say thank you? You say, you know, um, you say thank you they say thank you for your service they say thank you for your support right they teach us what to say because it does it does catch you off guard but it makes you feel valued and i think america in general made an effort to start to say thank you to veterans after like the 70s right after vietnam and and when people were like oh you probably should people went in the wrong direction first <laughs> right and they and and I think that's generally what we do as a society. A lot of times we make, or even as individuals, we make the mistake and then we, and then we build you know, the, the opposite. So I'm hoping that that's what happens with police today is because we have, we, I think as a society we are making a mistake in terms of how we're treating police officers um, and not recognizing the humanity of it. Just as in the 70s, people didn't recognize the humanity of, of our military people when we were, you know, fighting, fighting a war, um, as many people saw as an unjust war, right? Um, but I'll tell you this, my wife's family is from, from that area, right? And they were among the people that were being slaughtered, you know what I mean? And so you could, you know, it wasn't, there were, there were people who, even though, you know, Vietnam was fighting for its independence or whatever, or to, you know, there were people who were caught in the in the uh on the bad end of that if that makes any kind of sense you know what i mean and then you don't want to be caught on the bad end of of a revolution you know that that is that is a uh that it was a recipe for you know genocide and lots and lots of killing you know so my wife's family was on that on the side of of being you know eliminated <laughs> and they had to come here, you know what I mean? So, you know, um, when you look at it like that, you could kind of change history in terms of how people viewed America's place in, in Vietnam. 
But then all to say that when soldiers came back from Vietnam, the the general perception was they're the bad guy. This person who joined the military to protect and fight for this country or were drafted into the military, even worse, right, with no choice, right? And you were over there trying to survive, you came back and got called baby killer, right? And all of these other kind of things. And so now I feel like we're going through this, you know, um, me and Jesse talk about it sometimes, like this kind of second period of enlightenment. And we're broad stroking police officers. Um, I, you know, I think that policing needs improvement, right? And I think that the way that that improvement looks is quite different from what people are saying right now as far as allowed. I definitely disagree with defunding the police or limit, you know, I think that's just like only, you can only say that if you, if you, if you come from a place of, I don't even know if you can come from a place of not knowing or seeing, having seen some of the worst things that people can do. I think you have to be, you know, somewhat, um, delusional okay i can't think of a better word right i'm trying to be nice right so like i said tony i need to just be myself i think you got to be somewhat delusional right to really think that um you know a a non-existent police force or you know just complete disbanding police is is even a viable option right but does it does thing do things need to change yes but i think things need to change on like a micro and a macro level like what you were saying, Tony, or like what you, how you approach policing in terms of, you know, am I keeping these parts of myself? Am I, am I, am I, you know, not even necessarily making the job your life, because I think you can do that, but am I maintaining, am I holding on to my humanity? Am I holding on to that, that, that part where I actually care? Because um, that is, I think that needs to be, is that a part of, so these are my questions. Is that a part of police culture, right? What the things that you're talking about, do they talk about that at all in terms of like how they train you guys or like briefing and stuff like that? Like asking you guys, are you, are you maintaining the connection? How's your family? Are you maintaining a connection to your family? Are you letting the job mold you, right? In, in, in terms of or, or harden you to a point where you're not going to be as an effective, both as a, as a husband, wife, or whatever, a member of society, and then also as, as a police officer. Do they have programs set up for police to, to, to help them you know, keep that, right? Because it's, it's, it's a hard job and it's hard to keep. That's the yeah. real thing. So, um, you know, I went through the, my first police academy was in 1997, 23 years ago. At that time, when I was going through the police academy, they, we were not talking about that. No touchy-feely, this is a difficult job. You know, look right, look left. Some of you are gonna be in shooting, some of you are gonna die. So we're gonna teach you to stay alive. They could still physically, um, I'll just say touch you when I was in the academy. So I got many a forearms up into a wall with books flying around. Things have changed drastically since then. I like to think that the police academies now are different. I like to think that a young recruit going through the academy now, they're doing more mental well-being. I'm confident that they are. Um, I will tell you this too, and I know we're getting pinched for time, so I don't even know if you wanna go down this topic, but um, I do believe that reform is necessary. I do believe that we need to change some things. Um, I do believe that the police are just a catch-all, and that's a problem. 
Uh, we don't know who to call, let's call the police. Um, so let's create a system where the police can be used to deal with police scenarios and society can be used to deal with societal issues. Um, the mental health is really touchy and really dangerous um, because you're not necessarily gonna wanna send somebody out there that's not armed to deal with somebody that's armed that's having mental distress. But there's, there's lots of things we could talk about, but I'm, I'm not one of those ones that say, police needs to stay the, the exact same way it is now forever and ever and ever. I, I think we gotta be able to change. We have to be able to change for the betterment of society and what that looks like, but we have to be able to maintain the professional side of law enforcement too and, and the ability to take care of business um, because it's just absolutely fundamentally necessary as far as I'm concerned. Tony, I know with, with us being pinched on time, I have a few other questions, but I, since you volunteered coming back, I'll save those for next time. And, Let's do it. And, okay. And, and then perhaps we could just wrap up with you telling us, take the last minute or two to tell us a little bit about your nonprofit and what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thank you. I appreciate that. So when I retired, um, can we get real, real? Is this a place where we can get real, real? Please. My amazing wife wanted me to get uh, help while I was in homicide. Um, and I say help, she wanted me to talk to somebody. Um, I'm like, nah, I can't. It's just, we're not in that environment where I can. Let me just retire. I'm leaving at 20. This was about three years before retirement, well, about four years, and then about three years, and about two years. And I'm like, babe, I love you, but I'm not going to talk to anybody. Uh, I'm not going to show a crack in my armor. I'm not going to show an ounce of weakness um, and risk being considered unfit for duty, getting transferred. Um, I didn't want to go push a patrol car weekend night somewhere. I'm a really good homicide cop. I'm like, let me just finish. And it was wrong. It was a wrong approach on my behalf. Um, but that's the world that I lived in. And that's what I did. I left right at my 20, like literally right at my 20. I was ready to go at the stroke of midnight. And HR made me stay three days for my post my police officer audit to make sure that all my time for those 20 years were accounted for. There's nothing missing. Um, and I left and I went and got some help. I went and talked to somebody. The world was just a lot less peopley. Um, the weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Um, it was the best thing I ever did. And, and I really wanted to create an environment for police and fire where we can openly talk about some stuff and create some dialogue and just get some people some help. I mentioned earlier that we're losing a hundred plus being killed every year. We're losing a lot more of that to suicide, a ton more than that suicide. So um, Melly and I started a nonprofit, the Compassion Alliance, um, to do a few things. One of them is going after first responders. And we partnered with some local trauma therapists and we provide trauma therapy care and we take the financial responsibility out of it. So we use our 501c3 donations and we pay for those services so that the first responder can just get healthy. I don't want them to have to worry about insurance or uh, coming up with money to pay or being forced to go tell his HR or her supervisor. So we take all of that out and we say, this is between you and the therapist. We'll pay for it. You don't have to tell anybody. You don't even have to tell your wife um, or spouse. I don't recommend that, but we just want you to get healthy. So that's one thing we're doing. Another thing we're doing is going after our, our issue with unidentified human remains. 40,000 in the country, 1,700 in the state of Arizona is a massive problem that I guarantee you, Jesse, and you, Jared, do not know anything about it. And yet these are people's mothers, brothers, fathers, 
sisters. Mm. I tell Melody all the time, everybody came into this world with a name. They deserve the dignity to leave this world with a name. And so our nonprofit is humanitarian focused, apolitical. I don't care how you vote. I tell my board of directors all the time, I don't care how you vote. Um, I care about your heart. And what are you willing to do to make a difference? And then the third aspect of that are just service opportunities. I will not accept the 10 o'clock news as a final world that we live in. I still believe there's good people. There's still good organizations. There's still a lot of hurt out there and I'm not undermining that or diminishing it. There's a lot of hurt and justified hurt out there. Um, so we've got to fix that. Um, but we're doing, we've been involved with some medical missions, some peacemaking platforms. Um, I, I fundamentally believe in peacemaking. I'd love to come back and even talk a little bit about what that looks like and why I believe in that. So that's our nonprofit. We're at compassion-alliance.org. If you want to check it out, we have a Facebook page. And then I'm also doing some um, training. I'm an instructor uh, for Fox Valley, which is part of the National uh, Criminal Justice Division. I do child abduction response training around the country. That was one of my expertises. When I was in homicide, I was on a child abduction task force. So I do a lot of training. I travel a lot for that. I do a little bit of homicide, a little bit of long-term missing. And then if I'm not busy enough, I'm also a consultant for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children out of D.C. So I provide services to local law enforcement from the federal side on what they can do for child abductions and what that looks like. So that was a ton to throw at you. Sorry, but thank you for giving me the platform to do that. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate what you're doing with this page. You've motivated me to get more involved and uh, to start looking at this more. Um, again, selfishly, I just, I was a little hesitant because I just know one way and that's being real and vulnerable and honest. And there's a lot of pages where that's not welcome and that's not what I, where I want to be. So uh, clearly this page is a little different. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on here and spend some time with you. I'd welcome the opportunity to come back at any point. Oh. Uh, thank you. Thank you for coming on and thank you for um, saying that about the page. We're, me and Jesse both have a lot of conversations about making sure the page has the atmosphere that we want it to have. We've actually had members talk to us about growing the page and we're like, well, we have to have this atmosphere, right? So we don't, you know, we're not, we're not, we're growing with the page is getting more people, but the atmosphere and the place, a place where people can talk like you're, exactly what you're be vulnerable, right? And then not have that vulnerability attack, but have it um, mirrored, right? Have other people get on and, and, and just be honest and be like, yeah, like I feel the same way and not just looking to attack. Because I think a lot of times what's going on right now is people are, are being vulnerable enough to say how they feel, right? And then someone else is not because they feel differently they're they're missing any of the pieces like we did a talk the other day and there was a snippet taken out of our talk and it was like well that offended me and i'm going to attack there and the rest of our talk was was missed at first right um and so it's a lot of that like people are listening and looking for things that offend them right as opposed to the whole piece and seeing what they align with and then being disagreeing and so we don't want that to happen on the page and we want to build a culture that in the culture of the page it polices that behavior itself right so we want other people just to be even though i agree with you right i i'm going to or i may have the same point of view you have or the same view you have i'm not going to dis i'm not going to disvalidate or not validate this person's point of view because 
I can see where they're coming from. I can see the humanity in it. I can see why they feel that way, right? And let me approach it. You know, I not disagreeing with your feelings, your emotions, your perception, but I feel this way, right? Because of these are my experiences. And somewhere in the middle, we both realize that our feelings come from the same place and that we're not even that far apart from one another. And that's the culture that we want to create on the page is that recognize that we're not really that far apart from one another, but we can do that. We can blow it up if we want to, right? But like, if you're trying to be a good person, like if you're actively, like you just said, as a cop, you were trying to, trying to be a good father, a great husband, all this other kind of stuff. And I think most people really have in their mind to, even if they make their job their life, they want to be good at those things. They want to be involved in those things, right? And if you are honest with yourself about all these things that you want to be as a person, then it's the only people that you're this far, like you're like that far away from are the, you know, for lack of a better word, the animals, right? All the people who are fucking, you know, just out to hurt people. Right. And, and as Jesse kind of talks about, even they have some human, human size. They just, <laughs> even they're human, even they, most of them even have people that they love and people that can view them uh, in, in a certain way, even though they might be a little off kilter and whatever, they may not want to necessarily be that or believe that they can be, you know, you know, that, that human, that is good person, part of society, blase, blase, blase. Um, but I think that's the goal of the group is to get to that piece, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 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 um, I'm super happy that you recognize that. Got to have you back on. Have to, because I have like a hundred more things that Absolutely. I want to talk to you about on here, and, especially and with the predator prey thing. Huh? You are fundamentally a peacemaker and you probably don't even know it by validating, encouraging how you're doing. If we can just meet in the middle at what we agree on, it's, it's so much better than wasting time on what we don't agree on. Yes. It, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate you, man. I, like, I, I, it, it's, thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I appreciate you. Yes. I, tr I try to be a peacemaker. <laughs> yeah, likewise, Tony. I, I appreciate you being here. And I think that the challenge in building a bridge is society seems to obsess on um, the outliers that, that one percent that's so far extreme on one end or the other that we forget that the 98, 99 percent of us are much more similar and much more alike than we realize. And if we can work to, I think, remove a a conversation of what's right and what's wrong and who's this and who's that, but instead get to a conversations where we're seeing the humanity in one another, where we're understanding that what's going on behind the scenes it really does i think extend a long ways to truly building a bridge and making change and a bridge that all of us can travel over and advances society as a whole and i appreciate you being willing to take that risk and be vulnerable here with us and to share some experiences to be open to coming back and continue dialogues and also for you recognizing the need to continue to serve after your career has ended to do the work that you're doing right now. I think that's a really, you know, it's an extension of another bridge that needs to be built. And I think that's, that's really awesome. You're doing that. And it's awesome that you were willing to hold the space to have this conversation today. So thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Guys. I got one more question before he hops off. I'm sorry about that. Um, you said in the you said um, in the middle 
your second point in your nonprofit, um, you said some numbers, 40,000, you know, Arizona and then something. I didn't hear the point. So I know if I didn't hear it, somebody else might not, not have heard it. Yeah, so we have 40,000 unidentified human remains in the country. The state, the, the United States has 40,000. Um, and these are housed within medical examiners, coroner's offices, um, paupers, graves, all, all over the place. We, our state, state of Arizona has 1,700. Now our numbers are gonna be high because we have an international border. Um, Texas are gonna be high. Uh, California has their fair share, but these are, cases that nobody knows about. So at the tail end of my career, I, I worked those 11 years in homicide. The last three or four years, I worked cold cases, but specifically uh, UHR cases, unidentified human remains cases. Um, it's a huge passion of mine. Uh, it is a humanitarian crisis as far as I'm concerned. It's not even a law enforcement uh, concern at this point. Well, it is a concern, but it's not. Law enforcement, modern day law enforcement has so much to deal with. There are things we can do from a nonprofit, um, and that's what we're trying to do. It's a long process. It can get a little political. Um, so I got to walk that fine line because I refuse to play the political game, but um, there's still a lot of work to be done out there. But yes, 40,000 for the country, 1,700 for the state of Arizona. For, okay. Uh, so people who probably lost their loved ones, and they, well, they lost their loved ones, but they don't know. They're just missing they to them, and they're just un unidentified. And yeah, we could talk about story after story. Well, we won't even go there because we'll be talking forever. But yeah, lot, lots to chat about. Um, I would welcome the opportunity to come back. One of the topics we may, may want to think about is training. We talk about that. What does that look like? You know, it's easy for you guys to say we get trained or we don't get enough training, or we don't know how to find predators, or we do, but let's talk about that. What does that look like? shoot don't shoot scenarios why do we not shoot a, a gun out of a hand why do we not shoot an arm or a leg why do we have to kill them why do we shoot center mass let's have those conversations i'll Ooh. tell you why yeah. may or may not agree and that's okay but let's have I, these conversations. as a marine I, I, I i'm gonna tell people are gonna be mad at me because i'm going to probably gonna say some things as far as that's concerned they're probably gonna offend some people so <laughs> in terms of in terms of where you would shoot somebody if you know anyway never mind let's go <laughs> all right everybody <laughs> we'll Thanks, see you guys. all next time thank you tony bye-bye